0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something.
1: Hello feelers and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm one of your hosts Aaron and with me for this philosophically focused conversation is my best friend and co-host Patch
0: hello everyone was that supposed to be a robot hello everyone this is your philosophical co-host i don't know maybe I, i'm not sure
1: <laughs> i have expected you to like talk all ominously like you were a precog
0: <laughs> i would have to whisper or something like that that would be like I'd, instead i'd be like how like what are you doing aaron oh that would be good
1: <laughs> do you think, think we can predict whether this episode will be good or not
0: i don't think we have the uh, precogs here to help us so we'll have to just kind of wing it and hope for the best
1: well for the month of april our patrons chose steven spielberg's adaptation of a philip k dick short story for us to discuss and we are excited to dig in shortly we'll also be recording our patreon bonus content right after we finish this episode which is going to be another trivia battle to see which of us knows the least because it's not about winning. It's about just being less embarrassed, I think, for us. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you're interested in being a part of our amazing patrons so you can hear that uh, and other awesome bonus content, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash feel and film for as little as $1 a month. That gets you monthly bonus content, and then at higher levels, there are some even
0: cooler rewards available. I proudly plant my flag of humility in the sand every time we do this. 100%, man. It We're not good. But people learn stuff. That's what
1: it's all about. (laughs) Well, Minority Report. It's sort of as if Total Recall and The Fugitive had a baby, kind of.
0: I like that baby. That's a great marriage.
1: Yeah. Did you know that this was supposed to be a sequel to Total Recall?
0: I didn't know that, no.
1: Actually started production in 19, well, they started throwing the script around and back in 1992, it was supposed to follow Total Recall, and it just did not catch on. Uh, but it's supposed to specifically have, like exist in that same world, which actually makes a lot of sense, both from a visual standpoint, the way Spielberg shoots it, and then just kind of the realism, I think, of the tech and Is, the way things are going.
0: Yeah, are both of these Philip K. Dick-like-pinned yes. uh, stories- yeah, I knew Total Recall was, and I I didn't realize that Minority Report was as well.
1: Yeah, so basically, if it's a really good, cool moral dilemma and awesome sci-fi story, Philip K. Dick probably wrote it. Like, yeah, the odds are in the favor of that being the case. By the way, before, I'm totally going on a tangent here, but like, have you watched Devs yet?
0: No. Speaking I
1: haven't. of sci-fi, we need to check that out, man. Okay. Uh, you know, it's it seemed like that was a show that was totally up our alley. It's Alex Garland. Created and written. Yeah. It's starring Nick Offerman. Like I don't know why we're taking our time here.
0: It's supposed to be kind of out Night there. Lights.
1: It's Friday Night Lights is taking oh, pressure. That's minute. true. We have. And we've actually, listeners, we have made it through an entire season. And and this <laughs> I'm giving you I high
0: five like, digitally right here.
1: Yeah. Thank you. People <laughs> are like, so what? Who cares? You made it through a season of a show that's ten years old or whatever. Big deal. This no, listen, it's deal. an accomplishment is- for me. Yes. It's huge. And we are going to watch the season finale, season one finale together, Friday night. We're excited. And then we'll, you know, pick back up on season two and such. Anyway, I'm just going all over the place. So let's get this party started, shall we? One word takeaways for
0: Minority Report. What did you come away with? There were so many good ones, but the one I settled on was Power. And the reason I picked that was because not only does the movie just sort of evoke a sense of power from the technological standpoint. I mean, there's just all sorts of like technologically cool things happening here. I felt like the whole movie was powered on of sorts, the way it was lit, the way in which you had these bright whites and blues. And it just felt like everything was electronic. Like if you pulled the plug on the futuristic city of DC, the world would come to an end. That's how I felt like very much powered on. But there were a lot of ideas that existed in the movie that dealt with power. You know, the ability to control things, the ability to push this agenda forward on this whole pre-crime deal. And so a sense of power was evoked not only by the agendas that were being pushed, but also by the characters that were involved here, particularly John Anderton and Lamar Burgess, these two guys who were forcing this pre-crime or pushing this pre-crime agenda for different reasons so yeah lots of power in this movie for me
1: well that's not a bad word at all i like it and i totally agree mine is going to be choice because for me this movie is all about choice or the lack thereof what happens when someone else chooses to define your actions by your thoughts instead of what you actually do thereby stripping you of your choice to act or not act on them? What choices or freedoms might we give up for a more comfortable and secure existence? How does emotional trauma affect the level of rational choice that we may or may not make? And what about all these people in this world choosing to spend time in VR, Patrick, to experience what you can't in the real one? For me, I think about it pretty much constantly in this film, and it's always present in all of the story's themes. I really, really enjoyed this rewatch. And I think that the movie holds up extremely well, honestly. I have some quibbles with it, but especially in how it depicts technology, it's incredibly prescient for things that now exist, except for sonic shotguns. I don't know where those are at, but they need to make a quick appearance because those
0: were awesome. I need a sick stick in my life is what I need. Those were fantastic. Why are we going to the weapons first? of all? Because that's who we are, man. Yeah. I guess if
1: I have one major criticism, it's really that I think it could have been shorter and tighter. Spielberg sometimes has this problem of trying to end his movies where he sort of just continues to introduce new new elements and it becomes a little overly drawn out, I think, partially because of A big story element that he adds that's not in the short story. But in keeping with my one word takeaway, (laughs) the length is also a choice. And so yeah, there we go. All right, well, here is your spoiler warning, folks, we are going to talk about this movie in detail. I don't know how you could talk about this movie without talking about it in detail. To be honest, Uh, it is extremely complicated. (laughs) And for us to dive into, it's awesome themes and things that it gives us to think about we're gonna have to do that so if you haven't seen it i think i watched it on netflix is that right is i can't not, remember yeah. if i did okay as of so it's on netflix yeah. as of this recording Wh- when is it what are we in we're almost in, in may of oh that's right tomorrow it's gonna be may okay anyway. <laughs> um yeah may 2020 netflix minority report Check it out and then come back and listen to this episode. Or go watch it again and then come back and listen to this episode. Or just listen to this episode if you've seen it in anyway, Patrick, great science fiction worlds. Uh, they are usually crafted in a way that shows technological advancement in a believable manner. So it's not too far off from what exists right now. It's something that we could think, you know what, that could happen in my lifetime. Those are the best to me. And they also will always put us in some sort of ethical or moral dilemma and make us question what characters do and what we might or might not do in those characters' situations. And so the premise of this film is a very intriguing one because it imagines a future where people might be able to predict horrible events slash crime before they happen. And we have to wrestle with the concept of what might the law do differently if it had access to prophecy essentially what are the pros of that what are the cons of that and I guess I wanted to dig into this and I wanted to ask you like what did you think about this whole idea of pre-crime as a manner of keeping the public safe and like what do you think it might look like today And I wanted to preface this before you answer. I wanted to read this because Spielberg said that the arrest of criminals before they have a chance to commit their crimes in the movie actually has some real world background uh, in post 9-11 America. And he's quoted as saying, we're giving up some of our freedom now so that the government can protect us. And the Patriot Act and things like that always were in the back of my mind while watching this movie. Like how much are we willing to give up if pre-crime can prevent some of these things from happening?
0: There's a lot to unpack here and I don't want to get into a deep dive philosophical discussion because we'd be here all night. Although that would be fun. What I will say is this movie has a kind of a two part cocktail. First of all, sci-fi is always a great avenue to explore Philosophical, ethical, moral dilemmas. Star Trek as a franchise does this. That's why I was a huge, huge fan of The Next Generation because it was Gene Roddenberry's way of looking at the future and exploring who we are as humanity. I was also reminded of the other part of this two part cocktail, which is the slightly in the future fringiness of the science fiction. And I was reminded of a TV show Fringe where the early seasons really touched on things that could take place, that were based on some scientific theory that ended up becoming part of this crime procedural drama and then, of course, expanded into what it did without giving too much away, really good stuff. So when you watch a movie like Minority Report, you get both of those things. You get that kind of dilemma type story with really great sci-fi and you get it in a position where it is something that you could experience. And as you mentioned, Spielberg makes a great example of this by talking about things like the Patriot Act. The thing that came to mind for me, though, is if I'm going to touch on something that this is connected to in reality, the closest thing that I can think of is profiling. This idea that we're not necessarily predicting someone is going to commit a crime, We're predicting someone will do something wrong based on past history, based on their race, based on their culture. And in a lot of ways, I think that this is where Minority Report kind of gets away with it a tad because it doesn't base it on profiling. It bases it on future and science and all this fun stuff, which is worth exploring. What I think is great about this movie is that It creates a layer of believability, not just because there are futuristic elements that we can tap into, but the fact that pre-crime in this movie is not something that's established. It's in a trial period. It's actually been going on for six years. It's still kind of being worked on. And part of the tension of the movie is that it's coming up for a vote to become official. I like that. I like the fact that it's not an established thing. Because it brings us as an audience into that saying, yeah, I don't necessarily buy into this. I also like the fact that we have a character like Fletcher, one of the pre-crime detectives who essentially explains the nature of murder and why it's different than other things. Don't necessarily buy into that too, but I think it's a a great way to let us know, okay, here's why pre-crime exists in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, it's so it's basically like one of the best opening sequences of a movie, I think, ever. Really is that good. The first 15 minutes or so are pretty stellar because of what you're talking about. It lays all of that out. This is complicated, heavy stuff, and yet it does it in an exciting way with the murder that's being stopped. And that one's, I don't know if, how you call that profiling, he's like holding a you know knife or uh it looks like an ice pick or something and he's definite I don't know if he's being profiled he's gonna kill them but um but you know and, and then you're right you get this great dialogue between Whitwer and Fletcher and Anderton and they're debating the you know fatalism versus free will which we'll get into later so I, I just love what you're saying like about how quickly we get to experience like what pre-crime is and and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that, like, something would be in this test run. They've gotten the murder rate down to zero here in Washington, D.C. So, of course, it's going to go nationwide. Like, why wouldn't it go nationwide if, if that was in America today and Washington, D.C. suddenly had a murder rate that slashed down to zero? Wouldn't we probably be willing to give this a shot everywhere? I think that's where this movie is kind of basing it on what would be the likelihood of most people leaning towards agreeing to that and then kind of throwing us into a situation where we might have to deal with the reality of this. And the truth is like, Patrick, if this was real, you and I wouldn't know about all this stuff happening. We would just, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy and in the time of COVID, this is a terrible, dangerous thing to say. But you know, there are people that think that these are the type of things that are going on and behind the scenes with COVID-19. There's all of this secrecy happening. And yet all we have to base things on is what the media is telling us and statistics. And the statistics aren't lying. <laughs> the rate, the murder rate is down to zero. And so for the rest of the country, the reality is that they're probably thinking, hey, awesome. Just like we would be thinking, hey, awesome, because that's what we have to base it on. And yeah. so that's pretty One of the cool things about the movie is you you get put into that situation where it's like peeking behind the curtain. Exactly. Where you're not supposed to be.
0: Yeah, and a guy like Danny is a fantastic character because he represents, I think, who we are as an audience. Where he sees that on paper, 2 plus 2 equals 4. The crime is down to zero. It has been since pre-crime has taken effect. It must be doing something good. No, apparently the attorney general and he representing the attorney general want to make sure that there are no what he calls flaws in the system. And watching it this time around was really interesting because I I kind of focused on him trying to figure out, is he an ally? Is he an enemy? What's his role in this? And really, the analysis, Aaron, that I came through figuring out, or at least for me, was the fact that I think he's just skeptical. He's a skeptical optimist. Like, I think he wants this to be something but I think what I see throughout the movie is that he sees the potential for good but I think he's erring on the side of pessimism like he, I think he still thinks that rights are being violated and he I don't know that he wants to bring it down but I don't know that he necessarily buys into it and I think that he's a fantastic representation of who that skeptic might be that's really being responsible who's not just buying into the hype that pre-crime is the way to go. And it has been for six years. I think he's buying into the fact that there are elements here that could be good, but at what cost? And I think it's a fantastic question to ask. What is the cost for this business that we are doing in the form of free crime?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I totally agree. And he sort of feels like an internal affairs character. Yeah. uh, But without the animosity that usually comes when you're dealing with a police procedural and internal affairs, they almost never give any consideration to the other side, but you're right. It's, it's a very much, a, a like openness to saying, you know, Hey, I'm investigating and trying to get at the heart of what is going on here. And less about intentionally coming in with a preconceived notion and trying to shut things down. I um, he feels like, I guess as least biased as you might be able to be in this type of situation. I love that this movie is a detective movie early on. It's like it's got such a great balance of being a detective movie and then a on the run fugitive story where the fugitive on the run is also being a detective as he's on the run. It's really cool to watch this play out, right? It's it just it reminds you of the fugitive so much because he's trying to solve his own essentially murder, or he's trying to figure out why he's being chased. He knows why he's being chased, but he's trying to prove it wrong in the course of it trying to be ha- while it's happening. Um, and it just has a a very strong propulsiveness to it that keeps it pushing you along, kind of discovering little nuggets of anderson's story as he goes and i think one of the parts that really sells me on this whole pre-crime idea is that Anderson is inside of it right you're you're doing this with a character who has been the judge jury and i guess in a way executioner and they get it and they get put in this like matrix-like vr state where their brains are in the cloud somewhere it reminds me of like a black mirror episode <laughs> and I, I just kept thinking what was that what's that place I was like they're all in San Juniper or
0: wherever San you know, Ju- like, San Juniper Nero
1: yeah yeah that's where they emit well probably not that happy or you know whatever or the but 80s like, <laughs>
0: yeah
1: it's like that or the matrix you know like you have these pods and there's all these bodies and yet their minds are locked away somewhere but Anderton is the one who puts everybody there and so now he is on the run and I think it gives it so much more weight because he is want to believe it. Like he has to consider the reality here because of what he has seen and what he knows.
0: Yeah. I think the great thing about John Anderson is that he allows us to see both sides. He's been in it for six years. And so he sees what the detective sees, but now on the run, he has to manipulate pre-crime in a way that allows him to figure out how he gets to this fatalist conclusion of killing somebody and i don't know that anybody could have done this better than tom cruise i think he was a perfect fit for for this role i don't know who else was considered but you have that mission impossible flavor in this movie with a guy on the run trying to outwit those who he calls friends and using those who he calls his enemies so he takes advantage of those he's put away he uses the stuff on the streets and the people that are part of the darker part of this world to help his cause and it's a lot like ethan hunt he uses everything around him. he uses those resources For me, that's what attracts me to a movie like Minority Report because it takes that technology, it takes the world that we're given and asks us to just believe it and lets us have fun playing in it and seeing how all this technology goes about. And even down to the small things like the things that he takes for granted, like the cereal box that is animated that he has to shake to stop and then eventually throws away or... The, the videos that are really more holographic and 3D, these little things that, yes, we spend time with, but we don't necessarily center around in terms of like, this is the newest technology. Spielberg does a fantastic job through Anderton of letting us sort of experience this world that he's in in a very nonchalant way. He's not calling attention to all these things. He's just letting them exist so that we can go, wow. This is a fantastic world. And somebody like Tom Cruise, I think, makes that believable because we can relate to John Anderton. We can relate to his dilemma. We can relate to what's going on with him, not because we've experienced murder, that we're going to commit murder or that we've lost a child. But those things are very humanistic. It doesn't feel away. It doesn't feel far away. And so we're connecting with them early on.
1: Totally, totally agree with that.
0: The one thing
1: that I sometimes struggle with, there's a, an interesting thing about this movie where there is so much of it that is believable that then you have to also accept precogs. And I'm not talking about like the debate yet about free will versus fatalism, but essentially this idea that we created these human beings that were able to see the future and there's, Still an element that you have to, like, stretch your imagination there and believe that this random thing happened in which these three people, and there are only three of them, to our knowledge, that are together and able to see what's going to happen, right? And I don't feel like we ever really get a strong enough explanation about, like, why that is and an understanding from a reasonable standpoint that this is how these things got created' they're like superhero type stuff right it's it's a it's a miracle kind of thing and so once you stretch and you you believe that you can go with the rest as logical but it, it does kind of hinge on you taking logic away for a moment to like accept that part of this as reality and then from there logic plays a role right once you've kind of said, this is my base and my foundation, and we're going to just say, yes, this is true. This is my reality. Then you can go from there. But you do have to get to that point mentally where you're willing to accept that.
0: Absolutely. And Spielberg does a great job by doing that in the form of exposition. There are two conversations that help push those things along. The first one was, as I mentioned earlier, Fletcher explaining the nature of murder and how it's different from things like rape or other crimes that the precogs can't see it's very special okay well now the precogs can see murder so what makes them so special well it's the conversation with dr henneman in her greenhouse where she didn't set out to create pre-crime she set out to manage these children who were the offspring of drug addicts they were essentially not brain dead, but they had had flaws themselves. And she finds that some of them had these special abilities that she wasn't trying to harness for political reasons. She wasn't trying to harness for any kind of philosophical gain. She was really just trying to make them better. And without that conversation, it wouldn't have been as easy for me to be able to kind of believe that or follow that logic because otherwise they are superheroes that are untouchable. And after that conversation, watching Anderson's interaction with Agatha and everything that takes place with her afterwards really, really amplifies her as a human, not as an object. And that's another thing within the story that is kind of fought and played with, is this idea that are the precogs just this kind of, Electromagnetic thing that lives in a liquid thing that shows us the future. No, they're not. First and foremost, they're human beings. And we're made to think that they're anything but that, even by giving them their own statue outside the pre crime building. That's all kind of ambiguous. And by the end of the movie, I love that last shot of the three of them reading books with hair and just looking like human beings, because I think it further reinforces what Spielberg is saying in that these were children and they're not, and they're still human beings. They've just been manipulated to become something else. And that's part of, I think, what is fought for is that we can't use people as machines. It just doesn't, it's not, it's not okay.
1: Right. Like you're getting to this and there comes like a moral dilemma too. like you're getting this service, but you're forcing these people into slavery in order to get it. So is the fact that it's for the greater good really worth it if you're sacrificing them like against their will because they're taken? I love that moment where they're reading, too, by the way, because they're all named after authors like Agatha is Agatha Christie. They are specifically done that way. And so that's a cool little nod. So with the technology. Oh, before before one last thing on the pre-crime and the and the precog thing. I love that the murder balls <laughs> I don't know what else to call them. No, the crime balls. <laughs> the balls have dropped. Anyway, sorry, terrible. Uh the red one is a crime of passion if if they get a red ball. And it is specified because those those crimes are not as premeditated, so there's a lot less lead time. And, and not as much predictive, you know, uh, you know, ahead of the time moment for them to go. And so that's part of what puts us into that awesome rush of a first scene with Anderton trying to get there in such a quick manner. Um, but it makes perfect sense, too. Like, if you're not premeditated, you wouldn't get as much of a notice from the precogs. And so you've got to be able to scrub that data and figure it out quicker, So you can get there and stop it. And of course, he just barely makes it. And so part of that technology that helps them do that is so cool. And I I just love, love, love all the technology in this movie. You've got him, first of all, doing the scrubbing on the screen, like moving images left and right. Essentially, this movie predicts the swipe technology before swipe technology on iPads and stuff really existed. So there's that part. And that is just awesome. And then you have the cool stuff like the Sonic shotgun and the six stick. stick. Um, and you have the cool vertical car highway moment, of course, which is really neat. And you have this world where, again, going back to like this idea of is pre-crime worth giving up your rights for, you have this idea of the world existing with optical scanners. Uh, I was playing Final Fantasy VII Remake and just a little bit ago, uh, and, and this exists in that world too of Midgar where they're on a train and they have to get these new IDs because they're a scanner scans everybody on the train and has like, it's basically, it goes back to the old idea of like, oh, you have a chip in your body or something that will always be able to tell the government who you are. Well, that's what this is. These eye scanners can tell who you are. And so of course it forces us into another cool little subplot where Anderton now has to get new eyes in order to fool the scanners into thinking he's somebody else or he's going to get caught and that technology is both awesome and terrifying from a privacy perspective and then there's just all of it like there's uh like you said the the cereal box stuck out to me. I was like, man, I want a cereal box that is animated and sings to me. And I would probably get annoyed with it and throw it across the room too. There's the VR in the way that it exists in this movie. So it's not like VR is something nobody had ever imagined, but it's so realistic here. I mean, it's like almost what we have now. It feels like, and those spider drones, Patrick, those are super cool. Like, they just, you know, you shoot them in and they go looking and they have the little eye scanners on them. And of course, it gives us that one terrifying scene where he's in the bathtub and he's trying to fake it out. I mean, I just I, I can't I'm, I'm so drawn in to this gritty, dirty world that Spielberg created and how it feels like it could all exist just around that corner. And that makes it super exciting But also a little scary at the same time.
0: Yeah. The the technology that's used isn't used for technology's sakes. It's used to support what we already know could be real things. Like everything that we see, the six sticks being an example, I mean, those are like batons that cops would hold and you know, they'd stick into somebody's chest and you know, we're familiar with that. It's something that a cop would carry with them. We obviously don't have spider drones, but we do have these like stakeouts and these different kinds of searches that happen, these invasions of different homes here and there. So a lot of what we see in this movie is familiar to us. And I think the technology allows us to enjoy it in an entertaining way, not necessarily to celebrate the fact that people's privacy is being violated. But early on in the movie, when John is escaping pre-crime and he's getting scanned left and right what we see is advertisements and this is a very real thing that we experience now on the web. I go on Facebook and every 10th post is an LSU memorabilia championship ad because I have clicked on that page and have probably purchased something or at least scrolled through the website and now that data has been collected and so now I get to see that probably every 10 minutes or so and it's annoying. If I decide to comment on a mobile game that is not what is being advertised, (laughs) I get almost double the posts because my data has been collected. And the thing is, Aaron, I don't seem to care. I'm not freaking out about this. Why? Because I'm so used to it. I'm so used to scrolling through my social media and seeing things that pop up a couple of days after I've visited a website. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Big Brother is watching me. So this is not far-fetched at this point. With the advent of the internet. And with social media and the ability to collect data, we've just taken it one step further and we put it in a seemingly unique character trait, which is your eye sockets that can be replaced for a large fee. But even that has its flaws because they're still tied to something. And as we saw kind of in a humorous way, Anderton was given a set of eyes for, I think, a Japanese person (laughs) And because, you know, for, for a laugh or for, you know, for strategy purposes, we see that even in that, it can be an issue. So I, I think that it's both exciting and scary at the fact that the closer we get to what Minority Report is showing us, the more we realize that a lot of this stuff is not just for show. It's actually baked in at least a sliver of reality. And as the years go by, we're getting closer to that.
1: Yeah. Baby steps. Right. And you're right. It's conditioning. Like we're okay with it. I'm okay with the ads because you know what? It's showing me stuff that oftentimes I'm like, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. Like if I hadn't bought cat stuff, I would never know about this amazing cat wheel because it got, I showed up on my Facebook feed. Right. And you know, what's really creepy, man. I posted pictures a couple weeks ago on Facebook, of this cat tower that we found outside my daughter's house. Um, there was somebody on the street that was giving this away, and it was a really nice one. And so I picked it up, brought it home, took a bunch of pictures, posted them on all of my social media, on Instagram and Facebook, talking about how cool it was with my cats on it. That night, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and an ad pops up for a cat tower website, right? Like this place that sells them these really big and fancy ones and i click on it and i start going through the different options that they have one of the options is my exact cat tower that i posted i had no idea because we put we picked it up off the street right this person was giving it away but like the, it was able to predict exactly what brand and and it was like a really crazy brand it's not like this is you know something known to us like a ford or coca-cola that it's figuring out. Like it is some really random website and it was boom, it figured it out and gave me the ad for that exact product. <laughs> and I it was, it was so creepy and so cool at the same time. So, yeah.
0: There's a um a short story or an epi- there was an episode of Philip Philip K Dick's Electric Dreams called The Autofact based I mean of course if you haven't seen that series it's hit or miss, it's a lot like Black Mirror, but I mean nothing's going to be Black Mirror except Black Mirror. And in it, in this particular episode called Autofac, it dealt with this factory that even in a dystopian world where it existed after some big event took place, it's still delivering supplies that are not necessary. So it's delivering food that goes bad or delivering uh, things that are not beneficial to the people that are receiving it and they're trying to get it shut down. But because it thinks that they need it, it continuously delivers it. Well, recently I read that Amazon and some of its AI technology is starting to do, I forget what it's called, but essentially it's based on your purchase history for a certain small group of people it will deliver items to you based on your purchase history without you even asking for it. Now, you can choose to refuse it and send it back, no charge, but the idea is there. And I obviously, that exists here in the world of Minority Report in the form of these optical ads, you know, personalizing, hey, you should settle down and have, you know, a nice Guinness, John, or Hey, the new Lexus John is just for you. I don't think we're that far off, maybe not necessarily optical technology per se, but the idea of sending stuff to you in the form of Amazon packages 10 years ago would seem pretty far-fetched. Now, when I hear that news, I'm like, Yeah, I guess that's kind of the next logical leap that if I've ordered toilet paper for the last two or three months from Amazon, they're just going to keep sending it to me even though I haven't ordered it. Well, okay, I guess I could use that. I don't know that I want that, Aaron. I don't know that I want something based on an algorithm to predict my next action. And even though I have choice I think because of the nature of humanity being somewhat lazy we will continue to just accept that and and that AI will continue to learn and we'll get to a place of the the wally universe where we're sitting in chairs and not making any choices at all we're just letting computers make the choices for us
1: Oh yeah I think we're definitely getting closer and closer to that and that's what makes those movies entertaining and compelling because they show us that yet do we heed them do we take the necessary steps to change that trajectory or do we just let it come is it fate <laughs> can we even change it ha see what I did there yeah uh, <laughs> but really no seriously like so fatalism versus free will that's really the big conversation piece about this movie fatalism being the idea that all of our actions are predetermined and we are powerless to alter them and free will well that defines itself we have the ability to choose what we're going to do at any time in any moment there's an amazing conversation that takes place in the first 15 minutes right where fletcher and um danny are talking and fletcher says it's not the future if you stop it Isn't that a fundamental paradox? And Anderton then throws a ball at Danny to prove his point and says, the fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. You talked about this. This is where everything like hinges in this movie. It's all about, do you have the ability to change this? Anderton starts off running and is always running because he's Tom Cruise. So of course he's running. And he's unaware of who this person is that he supposedly is going to murder. And so it's totally messing with his brain. And he is trying to figure out, like, will he be able to stop himself? And and we, we get this over and over and over in the story. And one of the great explanations of it actually comes towards the end of the movie when the finale is happening and Burgess has kind of been caught and Anderton points the dilemma out to him. And he's like, listen, he can kill John, which will validate PreCrime, at the cost of his own life. So he can continue the cover up. It will stay the same because PreCrime has designated that he's going to kill John and everybody will believe that it is accurate or he can spare John, thereby allowing the program to be discredited and shut down. And Anderson specifically notes that the flaw in the system is that people can change their future once they become aware of it. And of course, it's a really cool dramatic ending because Burgess ends up committing suicide instead of killing John. And pre-crime is shut down and all of this stuff happens. An interesting note, by the way, in, thrown in there in the footnotes, is that it tells us all the prisoners are pardoned and released, although many remain under police surveillance for years. <laughs> ha! So, yeah, about that. uh They still don't quite get their freedom. They're still sort of hanging on being judged by their potential criminal acts that were going to be committed. But this idea, right, of, like, Is your fate something you can change or is it something that can be predicted? Whether it's an algorithm or whether it's a precog, you know, superconductor baby that has been, you know, discovered, which one is it? And I love the way that the movie examines it and is consistently setting up scenarios where these choices have to be made. Um And and it's great because we're like rushing towards that. And there's all these little nuggets of dialogue that are constantly feeding into that. There's a conversation with the creator of pre-crime, uh, Dr. Iris Heinemann, I think is her name. And she says, who wants a justice system that instills doubt? Even if it's reasonable, it's still doubt. And there's such an element of truth to that. Like, John, it's noted he's, you know, if pre-crime had existed six months before this, would his son have been abducted and disappeared? Maybe not. I mean, it's hard to go against that and not want to believe that. It's, It's easy to get emotionally swept up in this because you see the results as being such a positive thing. And then slowly you realize that, no, you don't have any free will left, even if you maybe do. There's a perception that you don't, and so you sort of become part of a machine that is buying into this fatalism. Maybe you get to the point where you believe that you can't change your own future, that you are just predetermined and stuck to be whatever you're going to be, and you're going to do whatever that ball says you're going to do. And I I love it. I love thinking about this. Uh, I love the entertaining way it does. It's basically like a biblical conversation I've had my entire life, but really fun (laughs) and (laughs) entertaining instead of dry and extremely theological and at times boring and confusing.
0: Yeah. When I, when I watched the movie, uh, especially in particular this time around, I started thinking about that idea a little bit heavier and within the, the narrative you have a sense of free will that does exist in small doses it's a it's a sense of kind of directed fatalism so it's interesting that early on danny who by the way chews gum like a champ uh is talking about rape and these other crimes that differ from murder the precog specifically target murder. So there is a compartmentalization that pre-crime is not necessarily solving every crime. It's just murder. And so not that that's necessarily should be just cast off to the side I mean murder is bad, but there are other horrible things that happen in the world that are not killing somebody. So there is a sense of free will that exists even in this world, although the focus is on pre-crime and murder. But even some of the fun stuff that we take into account, like early on when John leaves pre-crime and he gets into his car and then the car gets taken by, I guess, the police and he has to bust out of it. Contrast that later on with the big fight in, I guess, the Lexus car plant where the car is getting manufactured and then he's actually driving the car later on in the movie. So there's a sense of hinting at this idea that even within maybe a destiny that you have, you're still making choices that are in the realm of freedom. But then you ask that question. The choice that I make to get into this car that I can freely drive as opposed to being driven for me i still on the path of ultimately murdering Leo Crow? Absolutely, you are. Because as Dr. Heinemann says, you can't change that. I was thinking when he was in the greenhouse with her, why don't you just stay with her? Well, she says specifically, you can't change that because you've already set this thing in motion that can't be stopped. And so ultimately, it's going to lead you to leo crow and this confrontation that you're going to have and that's what's really interesting aaron is that if we didn't know that he was leading up to that moment where he was going to take down leo crow everything that he appeared to do seemed like his choice his choice to get new eyes his choice to download agatha's brain into the big computer at at rufus's or whatever all these things seem to be like his choice but one thing led to another that led to another that led to another and i think what the movie's kind of asking us is what we fundamentally are asking ourselves are we really making choices for ourselves and is or is that leading to an already preset destiny. That's been a question that I think philosophers have asked for years and years and years and years. And and I don't really have a conclusion. My own personal experience has told me the answer is yes. (laughs) and It's this ambiguous. I believe that my life has been predicted for me. It's been laid out. It's known by God, the father. And yet within it, I continue to make choices that Satisfy me that satisfy my family and that feel like choices because if I choose not to eat breakfast tomorrow, I know that biologically it's going to make me hungrier for lunch, which will lead to me eating a sandwich or maybe eating two sandwiches or something like that. So your choices have an effect, but do they actually change the ultimate path that you're on? And I think minority report. Is asking that question and really asking us just to kind of come along for that ride and, and really ask ourselves the same question. <laughs> Are we really in control? Maybe we're not, but maybe we get to hold the steering wheel for a while.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in this case, you know, it is still sort of ambiguous at times. Uh, you know, the truth is that. In that opening scene, that man is going to murder those two people. He's not in a mental state of where he is going to change it. And and Anderson points this out. I, I read earlier the quote. He says, when people become aware of their future, they have the ability to change it. Well, we don't have the ability to become aware of our future, Patrick. We don't know. So you, I can't walk out of my room after this podcast recording and know that I'm going to trip and fall and bust my skull open and then choose not to trip and fall and bust my skull open because I I don't have the foreknowledge of that. If Anderton had the foreknowledge that he was predicted to kill someone and maybe he is able to change that, but there is a big difference in that and not knowing it. And that's what throws a wrinkle in this whole situation is because when he gets to that moment, he does know it's coming. He's able to have a 20,000 foot view of it, so to speak. Whereas that opening scene shows us what happens when you don't have that view. Um, and so, it, you know, it lends me to wanting to believe in this world of, you know, this makes sense. This does make sense. There is a, an element of, if these predictions are correct and the only way to change them is knowing them, then them, they're accurate. And maybe the right way to go about this is to try and change the action versus criminalizing the thought. And maybe that's where the distinction needs to lie in this world. Because it seems like free will is a thing, but only if you know what's coming. And since you can't know what's coming until the precogs predict it, you would need the precogs to predict it, i.e. the fatalism, but then, then you could act on it. So if John Anderson busts into this house and stops this murder from happening or gives this person knowledge and says, hey, you have been predicted to five minutes from now murder your wife and this lover. What are you going to do about it? Now it becomes a choice and free will. And that is what makes this so murky because it's not straight biblical theological where it's free will versus fate. It's It's got that extra aspect of knowing involved in it.
0: It's That extra aspect is given to a person or a group of people that are not you. That aren't God, that aren't all knowing everything. And again, I go back to talking about the fact that pre-crime is contained. It's not a predictor of everything that you're going to do. It's specifically about murder. And that's where I think the waters get really muddy because you're exactly right, Aaron. Your choices to do something are determined by not only how you're feeling in that moment, but how relevant the outcome of that choice is going to be. There's the old adage, are you sorry or are you sorry you got caught? And I think that's what we're getting into, is that at the very beginning, if that guy knew that he was going to be arrested, would he still do it? That's hard to say because it wasn't premeditated because it was a crime of passion. And I think that when when it comes to premeditated murder, maybe that's different. But I think even as we see with John the reason that the precog saw what they did with his crime is because of what he said in that hotel room. There are only two things I've thought about this whole time since my son was gone. What would I say to him if I saw him again and what I would do to the man who took him? So when you look at something like that, I don't know that even if he knew that he was going to be arrested at any given point, which this whole movie is playing with, would he still make that same choice? And that's what I think the movie is Is allowing us to do is to to let us ask the question, would we do things differently or does something else take precedent over that choice to commit that kind of crime? And it's a good question to ask because it really allows us to judge ourselves and say, what's more important, that crime and getting justice or whatever is motivating us or the outcome of that? Like even Leo Crowe said himself, If you don't do this, my family gets nothing. He was willing to kill himself for the sake of his family. So he'd already made his choice. And I think that those types of scenes allow us to go, hmm, would I still make that choice even if I knew that I was going to go to jail or get arrested or get haloed, that kind of thing. And it's a muddy area. It's blurry because I don't know that if I was in John's position, I don't know that I would.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think that's why it's best sci-fi, right? Those are the films that I enjoy. Those are the stories I enjoy. The ones that it's not an easy answer where I can go and point my finger and be like, yeah, I'd do X. It's, I think I'd do that, but man, part of me wants to do that. (laughs) Or I don't know about this and then, but I don't know about that either. It's fun to explore those thoughts and those, and have these conversations you know, one of the, uh, the last thing I want to talk about was just that we see this play out a lot in movies where a family loses a child and the couple splits up over the trauma. And I believe in the short story that this is not what happens. I believe that Anderton is a single man and not married and separated, et cetera, but it's a very Spielbergy thing to add some family drama to this. And- I wondered how does that change drive the movie and in him specifically as a character? And I, for me, I feel like what it does is it makes it more impactful and relatable for a wider majority of the audience. Because if Anderson is a single man trying to save himself and I don't have the emotional hook of is he or isn't he going to get back with his wife? Is he or isn't he going to solve his son's disappearance? Like, those are things that as a parent and as, you know, uh, someone who's been in a relationship, like you can really feel the weight of those choices driving his actions forward. And it that emotional core is what sets up those scenes, I think, so well. It also is, to the contrary, what I think drags this film on a little too long and ends up wrapping it up with this nice little bow of them getting back together that doesn't make a lot of sense for me. But ultimately, what I see here is this reoccurring theme where parents who have trauma happen to them regarding their children end up splitting up. And we see it in the movies over and over and over. Do you think that that's because it is realistically what happens? And, And I don't know. I don't know if you have any knowledge of this at all, um, statistically speaking or not, but it seems like it makes sense. But why is that? Why don't couples come together in those that time? Why don't they bond even closer? In that time of loss, why is it something that separates us? But that is that is like such a theme in this movie that drives him forward um, that you can't really take it away from his actions and his ultimate choices.
0: Well, you said it best that it's a very Spielbergian thing to do is to add some family drama. This is just part of his M.O. So to not add that, I think, would take away some of the warmth that we get. The movie is shot very cold. There are a lot of blues and grays and whites, and um, you have a, just a really fantastic set of scenery that really elevates that. Two of the softer scenes are at the summer home or the ranch house, whatever it is, where there's a little bit more color. It's still a little cold, but it feels warm. And the, the way that the, that scene is shot is very soft. And I love the look of Laura. I love how his, how his wife looks. She was ironically on a TV show called Cold Case. (laughs) And that's where I discovered her. But she says something really interesting, Aaron. When Danny asks her about John, if she's seen him and he starts pressing on why they split up she feels that sense of regret about what she said in her statement and she says i left him because i could still smell my son on his clothes or on him i left him because whenever i was around john i kept seeing or feeling my son and i've seen that played out a couple of times in movies where the trauma of losing a child depending on how that is blame can be unintentionally put on one of the parents in the case of John it's hinted at early on but then shown in a flashback that quote he lost his child that he was at the pool with him when his son was taken and as much as I think she didn't want to blame him I think there is a sense of blame that she unintentionally puts on him and that creates a division that creates a sense of I don't know what to make of this. And so I think a lot of it is grief and it's how to actually process that. When you are connected to that event, even if you're not necessarily the cause of it, you are connected. And in a way, it's hard to separate that. I agree that the bow was a little too nice because unless we're talking, we're looking at probably like months later because obviously she's pregnant, they're back together so we're assuming that things kind of work themselves out but i think for a movie like this the length of it bothered me a little bit because i think there was a lot that was there that made sense but it was a little too drawn out i think it was appropriate for him to have that kind of motive i think you're right had it just been sort of a harrison ford fugitive type run running movie (laughs) we get a nice action kind of feel but the drama connects us to him the drama connects us to that family i never think that i want them to get back together i'm thinking i want him to solve this crime and the bonus is that he might potentially discover what happened to his son as a father obviously i connect with that more but you you look at a movie like this and you say could it have been fine without it i think so but i don't think it would have necessarily been as emotionally impactful
1: yeah you make a great point there that he lost his son that's right and that does sort of drive a pretty big indicator of why she would have that guilt or no sorry why she would have that blame uh for him and thus that would drive a stake between them and so it's not quite cut and dry as far as just the two of them having had their son disappear on an equal terms. Um, and that would be, that would be tough. It would be tough to get over. I mean, I can definitely understand that. Uh, it's just, it's just something that's so interesting that it always happens. And I would, I would love to see a movie at some point in my life where, well, this sounds terrible, where someone's son and a child is taken. <laughs> this is awful. I don't like where this is going, but they stay together and collectively strongly, you know, come and become closer because of it and the whole way through, whatever the trauma is. And and maybe I mean it probably exists, don't get me wrong. It's just not something that is usually shown to us. But anyway, moving on. Uh we are going to go into our connecting points now. Which, for, I don't know, the 15,000th week in a row seems to be, is going to be the same thing. We've chosen the same scene. So, why don't you take us away, Patrick?
0: I loved the moment in the hotel room where John has to choose. You mentioned earlier your one more takeaway is choice. And this, to me, is the quintessential moment that a choice is made. Apart from what we see later with Burgess and the choice that he makes. And I think what gravitated me towards this is the fact that in this moment we see Anderton holding the gun, crying, and reading the guy Miranda that he is holding everything back To not shoot this guy because he has so much rage. He has so much sadness. All this stuff that he has held inside of him for six years could justifiably come out. And you could make the argument that this was a pre-crime decision. That he was like, no, I'm not going to do this because I'm not going to let my future be fated at this point. But to me, Aaron, I think this was a decision that he made in order to not let this emotion, not let this tragedy get the better of him. What I saw in that moment was him overcoming not only, not his fate, but overcoming the desire to enact revenge, the desire to right a wrong. I'd like to think that as a detective, he understood that he's probably... Lived a life prior to pre-crime where he's seen people make bad decisions. And reading in Miranda Through the Tears, I think, tells me that he was making a choice for himself not to prove anything to anyone. And I love the fact that Agatha in the back is saying, you can still choose. You can choose. You still have that power. As I mentioned early on. And I think for for him, that's where our one-word takeaways really live is that he had the power to choose not to let his fate decide for him, but to actually change it. And Leo Crow ended up dying, but I think John knew that he wasn't going to be able to live with the consequences of that choice if he had ended up killing leo
1: yeah i you know it's so impactful from an emotional standpoint and right up there at the beginning as he's realizing what's going on and he's talking about it and he says you're right i'm not being set up i'm gonna kill this man and having that desire To actually do the thing that he is being predicted to do. And it has a great ending. Because of the fact that he is fighting against his nature at that moment. And how easy it would be for him to just go through with it and say, it's fate. There's nothing I can do to change the way I feel in this moment. Especially considering the job he's done for six years. And... Yet he does pull away from that. And it adds mystery, I think, to the narrative too, and how you've suddenly got this new surprise twist. Because up until that point, you feel like this is the climax of the movie right here. And then this guy kills himself and it sort of propels you forward into another portion of this story because you, you expect it to be resolved right there in that moment. It's, it's a, beautiful like mid-movie climax kind of thing and he just he can't win and that's what makes it so hard to watch when you're, you're kind of you're rooting for him and you're proud of him but he still can't win because of leo forcing the murder to happen anyway and he so he's still going to be expected to have killed this guy and it's so it's really it's hard all around um it is extremely memorable as far as moments go. And I think that's part of what makes it something you can connect with. I'll tell you talking through this tonight though, I have a harder time with it because I just accepting those words that I think maybe washed over me when I watched this before, because when she says you can choose, you can choose, you know, I I hang on those words, Patrick. And I'm like, yes, you can choose but this idea that you've seen your future and you can choose what makes you special. Like what makes you be able to do that? Like it it is so different because you and I don't have that ability. Like we we're we're sitting in this situation. We don't have that foreknowledge to make a choice, not to do a thing. Like we're just, we're acting on impulses and making choices as we go without any help. And so, It's almost like cheating. Like, John's almost cheating in this moment, right? And so there is a sense, and it's like, are you supposed to kill him? I mean, he's not, because we know that it's all a setup. So it kind of works out the way it's supposed to anyway. Because it is fate, in a sense, Patrick, because in that clip, because of the way that clip works out, like, he doesn't kill Leo. Leo kills himself. It just looks like he killed him. So essentially, he is Acting in free will, but it's still having fate run its course at the same time. The
0: outcome is the same. Leo Crow is dead. Right. That's the hand of John's gun. Correct. So. What, it's fascinating. And that and and is what makes it all emotional and perfect. What's, what's ironic about that, Aaron, is that Agatha tells him he has a choice. What's the choice? To kill or not? Why? Because he knows what the other outcome is. We don't have that choice. Ironically, every choice that we make, it's a choice not because we know that another outcome exists or that could exist. I could go to bed after our episode instead of doing bonus content with you. I can make that choice, but I really don't have that choice. One, because that would be weird for you to do bonus content without me, but also the fact that I don't see an outcome where that conclusion exists and it will happen if i don't do it. it's just it's weird because we can't see plan b where he can he's seen plan b for 36 hours leading up to this moment and so the irony of him being able to make a choice he actually does have a choice but he doesn't it's just it's mind blowing and it makes my head hurt especially this late at night and i don't want to do that so We'll leave it at being an amazing scene, and we'll we'll call that a night. So, uh, And with that, that'll do it for this episode of Feeling Film. May is here officially, if you're listening to this. And with that, a fresh set of film coverage, starting with a film getting buzz on HBO, Bad Education, starring my man Hugh Jackman and a plethora of other great actors and actresses. We've also got voting starting for our May donor pick, and this month, We will be voting on book-to-movie adaptations, which will be chosen by our faithful patrons. And as you've been hearing, uh, as Aaron mentioned earlier, you know how to sign up for that and be involved. And hopefully you can be around for the voting and pick a good one for us. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening.